Why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside? One, two, three, four. This is the Prying Priest Podcast, and I'm Father Yuri Hladio. You're listening to the first half of an unedited interview about the personal stories of amazing people and why they have come to believe what they do. The second half of these interviews are reserved for patrons only. If you like this show, visit my website, pryingpriest.com, for more content and to learn how you can become a patron of the show. Enjoy the first half of this interview. Bev, you are the second person to come back for another interview. The second person? Yeah, I've had Braden Siemens on three times. I thought I'd be the first person invited back because, Yuri, you've told me that my episode is the most listened to episode on your podcast. It is by far the most listened to episode. And by far, I mean not by far. But, you know, you got, uh, you're getting close to 100 downloads on your episode, which is not too much. That's pretty big. That's pretty big. I've, this show has now surpassed 2,000 total downloads. Congratulations, Yuri. Yeah, it's. I'm realizing how tough it actually is to build a show with no social media. It's presence. next to impossible, and I'm impressed by your willingness <laughs> and your diligence in doing that. Well, so I'm doing this Patreon model, right? And one of the benefits of the Patreon model is that your patrons are not fickle, right? So they're, mm. they're the, the higher barrier to entry that you have, the more committed that people are when they enter right it's like it's like a cult you know right okay so you're calling your patrons a cult, uh, a yeah. cult. all right do they have a name like yuriites oh interesting no please no not named after me please um no Pri- i don't know prying priesters the prying priesters priestites <laughs> I don't know, something like that bev i brought you on for another interview mostly because we you know, every once in a while we chat on the phone and then before you know it, we've chatted for like an hour and it's been a very interesting conversation and I like to talk to you. So I thought maybe we could just uh, speak again. And uh, and uh, firstly, I'm wondering, have you had any conversations with anyone in your life that listened to the episode and like about the episode or anything like that? Has it uh, come up in any way? Has it made you, you know... I hope that question makes sense. It does. My mother listened and she found it at times hysterical because she remembered some of the incidents I talked about in the first episode. What with me telling a group of Baha'i people that I was planning to join them at the tender (laughs) age of 13. Mm -hmm. And I think she was also a little bit uh, self-conscious maybe um, about this very kind of unorthodox, no pun intended, mm-hmm. way of growing up kind of with religion, but kind of also not at all with religion. Mm-hmm. Right. So just her, really just her. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think my friends are sick of hearing my voice, so I don't know if they listened to the podcast, <laughs> but, um, you know, maybe they did. I'll have to ask. Well, you have the most listened to episodes, so I'm <laughs> sure someone's listening to it. I would love if if people would comment on this episode and, and tell me what they thought about my very strange upbringing. It'd be interesting to hear from other folks about it. I think that your experience of religion 
and growing up is is probably the more is becoming more commonplace and becoming more mm-hmm. of the of the typical story of people's religious experiences in Canada. Um, maybe not like ten or twenty years ago, but maybe like nowadays. I think that's that's happening more and more where people are people are okay. I think exploring a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. People are people are less tied to their denominations to use the the d word right right and i think it's because of all these hipsters you know these granola people they're they're not tied to one specific ideology perhaps they're kind of (laughs) loosey-goosey right yeah and then and then you know there's this because people aren't becoming statistically speaking people are not becoming less spiritual they're becoming less religious mm-hmm. right there, there's a the the uh, there's a there's a large number of people who identify as nuns n-o-n-e mm-hmm. right though with no religious affiliation mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. lots of people that are identifying as nuns who still you know they, they might you know do yoga or do you know various types of uh, different spiritual practices um and i guess yoga would be there would be a spectrum of how people, what people think that they're actually doing when they're doing yoga. Absolutely. Some people really just see it as exercise and some people see it as a mindfulness practice. And then some people really do feel connected to God or some higher being. Do you have any practices that you do on a regular basis that you would call a spiritual practice? I think so. And I'm not sure anyone else would agree. Ah, uh, okay. So, yeah, because I framed the question as something that you would call a spiritual practice. Right. And and maybe I wouldn't even label it as a spiritual practice, but I think in my work as a trainee in clinical psychology, soon to be a doctor uh, of psychology in, in a couple of years, I think my practice of empathy invalidating other emotions to me is in a way a spiritual practice in that there's so much connection there. And as you might remember from the episode, I identify the most with this idea of pantheism, that everything is God. And I think when you make those connections and you're caring for other people, that is acting in line with God's will. So, I like to think I that's a big part of my life and in a way it is a spiritual practice though it's not like prayer. Oh, there's Watson in the background. I heard barking. Mm-hmm, yes. I'm trying to think what what the closest thing in my life is to prayer. Um I I practice mindfulness a lot both formally and informally. So formally is meditation and informally is practicing being mindful in the moment, like even right here, right now, only doing this one thing, being fully engaged, you know, connecting with the present moment, using all five senses. So to me, that's also a form of spirituality. Um but am I praying or asking for anything or thinking someone external is listening or hearing this? 
know, though. I don't even know if that is a tenet of prayer for all religions, right? That you believe someone's listening in. I actually don't know that. But I think it's something I've been shown, especially with my Christian upbringing. Like, ask God, God's listening, right? This idea of there's an external force listening in to what I'm saying. I've never really connected with that idea. Yeah, that idea is, 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 um, can be actually, I, I'm not, a, I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of that idea, right? Because it, it makes this idea that you can like pray to this external thing that's out there mm-hmm. that has sort of puppet strings in the sky kind of right. moving things around to a, to a degree. I think that that can be actually an, an unhelpful, I think it is an unhelpful way of framing prayer, even in, even in a Christian context, even though certain Christian traditions and churches say basically that that is what prayer is. Um, whereas I think, I think a more proper view, because what it, what it, what it does is it separates God from creation. Exactly. And I think there's this idea in psychology about our own, uh, loci, that's plural for locus <laughs> of control. So we have an internal locus of control and we have an external locus of control. And I think when we externalize God and we ask God for something and we're imagining he or she or they or whatever <laughs> is listening in, um, you know, we're kind of giving it, giving all our power up to God. And maybe that's helpful in some contexts. I don't know. But maybe in other contexts, you don't feel that sense of mastery in your own life that you can do things for yourself. Maybe it would make you almost feel helpless. I don't know. This is just conjecture. Mm-hmm. But I think it's something I I never really connected to that there was this external force, you know, with his ear listening in to my little thoughts. <laughs> right. There is this, um, okay, so you mentioned that, you know, one of the beliefs that you probably most associate with <laughs> that people might be familiar with would be something like pantheism or things like that. But you, but you, but you, um, you, you said that because primarily, not because you particularly had an attachment to any belief system, at, at least if I'm hearing you correctly. So it's right. not that, it's not that you decided you were a pantheist, therefore all these other beliefs start. <laughs> Or all these other actions pour out of that. It was more so that you, if I'm if I'm getting this correctly, and maybe you could speak a bit to this, that you would have these experiences in like therapy or or these the empathetic experiences, right? You you were regularly practicing empathy, if you want to put it that way, and that made you come face to face with an aspect of human life that then made you feel like you had not made you feel like you had to but um you it naturally led to trying to conceptualize the way that the universe functions and the closest thing i guess that you would point towards would be something like pantheism does that make am i characterizing this right i think you are though i came to this pantheistic viewpoint before i actively pursued doing therapy with folks so oh, okay. I've held this pantheistic view since grade eight. 
Oh, interesting. Okay. I just never labeled it as such until I found out there was a word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Until I found out there was a word for it. So what, what is it like, how, like, how are you able to point all the way back to grade eight? Like what happened in grade eight that made you? A yeah. Panthers? I, I read this book by Eckhart Tolle called A New Earth. I think I oh, talked okay. about it on the first yes, episode. You did. I just didn't know. Uh, I don't think you talked about when you read it at that point. Mm-hmm. I read it in grade eight and wow, it bowled me over because it was the first time someone like spoke to me in a way that just made my life make sense. It was really mm. the first time. It was a very organizational experience. It organized the way I saw the world in a different way, but in a way that made a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the author talks about God as consciousness, being, energy, universe. That's the language that's used. It's not an external force. It's all kind of right here, right now. There's an Orthodox theologian who wrote a book in the last oh, 10 or 20 years called uh, The Experience of God Being, Consciousness, and Bliss. <laughs> mm. um, and uh, I, to any of our listeners, that it's, it's a really... Because um, he, he talks... This is the exact topic he's talking about, right? This, these rival conceptions of the divine, mm. right? And, and how, especially in certain Western parts of, of the Christian consciousness, God has been... Uh, uh, evacuated out of creation, right? To this like other realm somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this divorcedness between our daily experiences and divine, right? Um, absolutely. Absolutely. And he would see that as a problem, right? He would see that as a, as actually an, an abandonment of certain core Christian uh, ideals. But uh, yeah, anyways, just thought I'd throw that plug out there. Well, it kind of reminds me too of this idea that maybe people are pious or religious or practicing only on Sundays and then the rest of the week they forget. Right. And I think, I don't know. I can't criticize those folks. I'm not religious. I'm, I'm in no place to judge, but I just wonder how helpful that is. If people kind of conceptualize that God's day is one day of the week rather than all times. Right. And that, and that uh, people fall into the mental trap of thinking that God also has a, a place, right? It's in the church, mm-hmm. right? Or like, mm-hmm. this, is, this is the place where you have to be holy, and then mm-hmm. everywhere else you can be <laughs> however you want to be, right? Right, right. <laughs> I, lo- I love Watson. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's... Um, talk a little bit about your podcast because you just uh, actually released a podcast. Do you want to talk just a bit about it? Uh, give it qu- give a quick plug so people can stop listening to this and go listen to yours. Um, and then after that, we can uh, jump into some of the uh, particulars. I'm just going to wait for him to stop. <laughs> Watson, thank you. Thank you. Good boy. 
Yeah. So I started a podcast. It's called Stop Psychoanalyzing Me. And it's been my dream since the first year of my studies in clinical psychology to start a podcast. And I am now in year five of my six-year program. So I have wanted to do this since year one. So to finally have it happen actually does feel like a dream come true. And anyway, what what it's all about is it's me interviewing experts on the mental disorders that they study or they treat to help lay folks understand mental illness in a way that's really accessible, educational. I wanted to have as much information as a lecture, though without it feeling like you're listening to a lecture. It really is just a guided conversation. It plays out like two friends kind of talking things through with one friend just being very curious. And so you're kind of invited in on this journey with me to learn more about these disorders. So I do my best to keep it lighthearted and educational and not too long either. I think podcasts that are too long are easily tuned out. So I like to add in musical breaks and yeah, try to keep the content fresh and relevant and evergreen as in you can listen to this podcast a year from now and it'll still be relevant. That's my goal. Right. Do you find, because you are somebody who is working towards a doctorate in this field, but you are in, in the podcast, you are taking the stance of like an amateur psychologist. Right. Right. So do you find it difficult because you, you know the jargon, you know the insider words. Yes. So do you find it difficult to step outside of that to keep your experts like on a on a everyday conversation level? Yes, it's been tough. Uh, I've had to stop my experts several times to define terms that are just a little bit too technical. And they've been kind of jarred like, oh, wow, you're right. I didn't realize that that was uh, a technical term. Um, Folks have reported that they find it really helpful that I've stopped experts in their tracks and had them define terms. But even still, I've missed a couple terms. And uh, I sometimes worry that maybe at times it is a little bit too technical. But I think it's such a new podcast. There's going to be a steep learning curve. And I just need to keep doing it. Keep, Keep putting it out there. But of course, I'm open to feedback as well from folks if they're finding it too high level. I think it's great. So so I'm doing some of the editing on it and I get to listen to the I get to listen to each episode as I'm going through it. Um and it's it's amazing. I really I'm really enjoying it. Thank you so much, Yuri. One of the uh, so so I have a question about the because you you interview experts, mm-hmm. right? So so these are these are people who are actually some of them are like the, the, the cream of the crop when it comes to yes. particular aspects of um, research into um, psychology and, and all that stuff. Um, to connect it with kind of the Prying Priest podcast, what is the general atmosphere regarding like spirituality or religion amongst 
psychologists? Or, or what have you, what have you picked up on in your own experience about the way that people talk about it or, or live it or, or whatever? I think tied with the anti-racist movement that has come out of George Floyd's uh, murder and the ensuing protests in the United States. And that was mid 2020, let's say Um, with that movement has come a radical shift in North America in my field. And it's very cutting edge and it's, Excellent. And I'm so proud to be part of this. And why this is relevant is because we as a field are talking a lot about this idea of cultural humility, which is this idea that folks are coming into our office or they're coming into our research centers with a whole set of lived experiences that we might never understand and that should be honored in treatment, right? So we're basically saying no more are we taking these demographic variables like age, religion, marital status, level of education, putting them on the intake form and then never bringing them up in the office. That's not helpful for our patients. We have to honor their lived experiences in the way they see the world. And understand where we're going to have our own blind spots and not understand or not be able to connect fully with the experiences they've had. But this idea of cultural humility is understanding that people are coming in with those experiences, honoring those experiences, and not being afraid to talk about them in the therapy room. So if I have a participant in a research study or a patient that I'm treating who is particularly spiritual or religious, um, and maybe I don't know that religion or that spiritual practice, or maybe I don't know much about their culture, and we know that religion and culture are so tied, right? Um, You know, I might be afraid to bring it up. I might be afraid that I'm going to offend them or that they'll view my ignorance as some sort of lack of expertise, And so it's just been so important to have this movement happen because it's really shown us that we just need to be okay with talking about hard things. And sometimes talking about hard things are talking about things you know nothing about and just admitting to your patient, hey, I actually don't know anything about your culture. I'm happy to look into it more. But is there anything that's really relevant for you um, that you think I should know now? And it's not about the patient educating us. That's not their job. But rather us collaborating in such a way that we at least feel like we're on the same page and we have a strong alliance. And sometimes this might mean referring a patient out if we can't seem to connect to or understand their experience. And that's okay. But if we don't have these conversations, we actually might be doing more harm than good to our clients. So I'd say there's a great deal of room for spirituality in therapy. And we know that meaning making is extraordinarily helpful for mental health. And faith to me is the definition of that. It's making meaning out of 
the randomness that is life. It's organizing our experience in such a way for us that's helpful. And so it's very much alive and well in our patients. And to be an excellent clinician, it should be honored in the room, not ignored. I think that's actually quite refreshing to hear the, the, because I can imagine the vast differences there are in cultural expectations based on the cultures that people come from. Right. Yes. And there's no, you know, carbon copy baseline human person. No. Right. So it's like, okay, well here is, you know, um, Joey, this is, you know, Joey, this is the standard human. (laughs) Right. So let's build all of our models based on Joey. What's helpful for him and then apply that to every single other person I think can be problematic. I'm sighing, Yuri, because our treatment manuals. So it's it's very interesting. And without getting too technical, basically when you test whether or not your psychological intervention, your your therapy, when you're testing whether your therapy works or not, you come up with a manual and you administer the manual. So this is what session one looks like. This is what session two looks like. Maybe let's say it's 12 sessions. You compare how folks did at baseline so before the therapy to how they did after therapy. And you might even make comparisons. Actually, in a good study, you'd make comparisons against what's called a control group or a group of people who had similar characteristics at the outset but didn't receive the treatment, right? And so to do research, to do sound research on these therapies, you need a very clear model and a very clear manual, Right. And so these research studies get published and will say X treatment, like cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, CBT has a lot of evidence. It has a lot of what we call empirical support for most depressive and anxiety disorders. The problem with it is because these research centers are typically in North America, housed at colleges or universities. You get a lot of affluent, white, early 20s participants who these manuals end up inadvertently being designed for. So how psychology grapples with this is instead of taking a manualized approach week after week, we do what I what I was just telling you. We, we look at... a the whole of the patient, and we look at all of the different factors that are maintaining their mental illness, right? Perhaps someone is depressed, and when they're depressed, they drink alcohol to help take away the pain, but they're never actually fully feeling their feelings, and now they have an alcohol use disorder or an addiction to alcohol. Um, we take that problem that very kind of minuscule problem, we hone in on that using bits and pieces of manuals that have been tested that show to be, that show us, that are shown to be effective. So you end up 
coming up with what we call an integrative approach where you're integrating different evidence-based treatment manuals to target very specific symptoms in your patient. And by doing that, you're honoring all those pieces of them that they're walking in with in the room. Now, of course, though, if someone is coming in particularly spiritual and perhaps the intervention does not seem to map onto their model of how the world works, you're going to have to work with the patient, collaborate with them so that their symptom can be reduced, their alcohol use can be reduced in a way um, that, again, feels meaningful to them, is acceptable to them. Because if a treatment isn't acceptable to a patient, they're not going to do it. So it's interesting because all the research is on these very manualized approaches. And then in real practice, we kind of use a mix of manualized approaches and also integrating from other um, manuals or, or treatments. And you'll meet some people who are very much in the first camp who stick to the manual. And then you'll meet people who are kind of more uh, integrative, who almost never touch a manual. And both are good. But but that's sort of what we mean when we talk about finding a therapist that fits for you, right? Someone might like something very manualized. It feels rigid and structured, has homework exercises. Or maybe someone else just wants something more experiential, meaning that they're engaging in the tasks of therapy just in the room and they're not taking any of it home. It's very interesting. I could talk about this for hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think I think that the social and cultural dynamic that you're pointing out is present in a lot of different aspects of human life. And, you know, obviously I'm a priest who lives within a, you know, a churchy kind of context. And so what you're saying, I'm like, oh, that's sort of what you're saying kind of maps onto sometimes the way things work in the church. But a, a metaphor that I found useful, and maybe, you know, let me know if you think this is actually connecting with what you're saying, um, is that um, th- there seem to be two things that are equally important. One is my own personal lived experience, right? A fancy word for this might be my standpoint epistemology, right? Like how I know what I know because it's me. Like me, Yuri, Gladio, I have my own individual sort of standpoint epistemology, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and when you hear people talking about like my truth or, or things like that, that's what they're getting after, that you have a particular lived experience with your own lens that, that no one else can see through. Right. But at the same time, I think there also exists, there exists a amalgamation of millions and billions of people's, other people's lived experience. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and and the metaphor that I find useful is one of a a map. Right. So like a a map is not the real thing. Right. So uh, when you're on a boat sailing the ocean, you are experiencing the real thing. Right. Yes. But a map, a map is useful if you have a particular goal for maybe getting somewhere. Right. Right. Um, oh, I want to go from, you know, England to the United States and I'm on a sail. You're going to need a map. And not because the map is more real than your personal experience, but because the map is actually an amalgamation of thousands and thousands and millions of previous people's experience. And you can actually 
not I, for me, it's not one or the other. Yes. Oh, right? Yeah. I love that metaphor, Yuri. I, th I, th I think it's helpful uh, to think of it that way. Yes. Yeah, so, so we can think of the map as one of these established treatments. Right. And the waves or the actual experience on the boat is, yeah, someone's own personal lived experience. And sometimes um, an iceberg pops up or sometimes an unexpected other boat comes up. Right. Um, it doesn't mean the map is wrong. The map, mm. the map is still correct in its own way, but it's limited, I suppose. And so, yeah. what what we do as therapists is we're we're like both cartographers who yeah. like use these maps and create these maps, and we're helping folks kind of navigate those stormy waters at the same time. You're balancing both. You're mm. balancing science and art always as a therapist, as an evidence based mm. therapist. <laughs> right, right. Because I think, you know, that that having that evidence base, I think is essential. Right. Um, because you can get into you can get into, let's say, very interesting forms of therapy yes. that might not actually have an evidence base to it. And, and I think, you know, if you think about a map, the map is made up of a whole bunch of people trying something and going, oh, that's not what it is. Oh, that's not what it is. Oh, that's oh, this is OK. We've you know, we've actually repeated this journey. Um, 3,000 times and it's been the same every single time. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's something consistent here that, that can help us out in future, in future journeys. And I, and I think that's what, you know, the evidence-based side of uh, things uh, w w where that is useful. Absolutely. I love that metaphor. It's a good one. It originally comes from uh, in, in, in a relatively similar context uh, comes from originally from C.S. Lewis um, who talks about, you know, he, he was in a, uh, he was giving like a little bit of a sermon or whatever to, um, the RAF pilots, like Royal Air Force, uh -huh. um, pilots. And, uh, and one of the pilots gets up, he's like, you know, I've been, you know, I've been out on the water and I've, ex I've experienced God. And that's why I don't believe any of your dogmas, right? Because I I've actually had the experience, mm. right? And then C.S. Lewis was like, yes, you did have the experience. And that experience was the real thing. But the map is useful as well. Yes. Right? And I think that, you know, religious people, this is where dogma and canon law and things like that um, come into religious life. What right? is canon law? Canon law are the, uh, so it depends on the church you belong to, uh, but there are councils that happened throughout church history where a bunch of bishops would get together. And there might be, let's say, a problem that's going on or an issue in the church. And they would get together and they would adopt, you know, bylaws. They, they would say, you know, here's a canon law. If you are a man, like literally the first canon law of the first ecumenical council in church history, the first canon law is if you have castrated yourself, you are not allowed to be an ordained priest. Huh. That's the first canon law. But uh, so there's issues that were going on in the church that they wanted to deal with. So they're basically <laughs> imagine laws, but church lo church laws. So we're a bunch of men like cutting off their own testicles and trying to be priests. Uh, <laughs> you can assume that, I guess, from the uh, from the uh, context there. And then the church was like, we don't want these weirdos <laughs> being priests. <laughs> Perhaps, perhaps. So, yeah, and, and, and the church gets into trouble because 
uh, it's 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 this dynamic relationship between dogma or it's 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 the relationship between the map and the actual experience. Well, right? that's exactly what therapy is. Right. Mm-hmm. I have a question for you. Let's pretend. Let's pretend, right, that you have a patient who is heavily involved in her Christian church, mm-hmm. right? And, and really wants therapy to be um, a parallel kind of hand-in-hand effort with her Christian worldview. Yeah. What would be the role of her pastor or priest? Like, what would you want that pastor or priest to, to do? To, to help in that situation. Ideally, the pastor or priest and I would be on the same page. Right? So let's say she was struggling with alcohol use, just because that's an easy example, right? And the priest was saying, or the pastor was saying something like, you know, you need to completely abstain, just pray every time you have an urge to drink, It'll go away. God will grant you grace. Just keep praying. You're not praying hard enough. I don't pray, know. Pray the gin away. Pray the gin away. And I'm saying, okay, so we understand that you're drinking alcohol because you're in deep emotional distress. And whenever you're in distress, you get this overwhelming urge to drink. How can we help you treat the distress underlying that behavior of drinking? Right. So these are two different messages she's receiving. Right. And perhaps in my approach, it might be more harm reduction at first than abstinence right away. Right. But if she's receiving this message that you need to abstain, whenever she does slip up, she's probably going to feel a great deal of shame, just probably going to lead her to be more likely to drink. So I think I would want to be on the same page with her pastor. Um, If the pastor was, or priest or whoever, was this very kind of guiding force um, in her life and had a lot of sway or pull. I can imagine that there might be times when a therapist or a physician or a psychologist or social worker, whomever, mental health worker, you know, might disagree with a priest or a pastor. And I think, too, addressing that in the room with the patient is going to be helpful and say, look, there are two different approaches here. What do you make of that? What do you make of, of two different people that you trust telling you very different things? And maybe hopefully you could come to some kind of synthesis or kind of a middle ground between the two. Um, But I could see perhaps a pastor or priest, um, their voice interfering with treatment. We would call that a treatment interfering experience. It's interfering with the patient's recovery. Conversely, you know, my mind went to the worst case scenario, but maybe conversely, the priest or the pastor is completely like open and forgiving and compassionate and lovely and says to the patient, Hey, go to this therapist. There's evidence behind this, right? 
that would only bolster, I imagine, the patient's resolve to do the therapy work. And it's hard work. It's hard to change a behavior. Just get a dog or a child and you'll see how hard it is to to change behavior, to train someone, to sh- or train a, a pet or something to do something. It's hard to do it on yourself too. We have habits, right? Those habits serve us in some way. I don't know if that's the answer you were looking for, but I think it it could very well be a helpful adjunct to therapy. And I think maybe in some cases it could be therapy interfering. If you were, okay, let's pretend 10 years from now, you know, we're 10 years in the future and you actually belong to a religious community. Mm-hmm. And you're looking back on the last 10 years. What happened to make you join a religious community? And what kind of religious community you know, would it be? Wow. Oh, it's an amazing question. And I'd, maybe you don't have to do like specific, oh, I would belong to this particular denomination. Maybe right. it can be the, the, the kind of people that are part of this community or something like that. Sorry, mm-hmm. I interrupted you. That's okay. I would want to be surrounded by people who are extraordinarily open, who are not bigoted in any way. So not racist, sexist, you name it, all the ists. <laughs> I'd want to be accepted for who I am and I'd want to be accepted for the things I've done as well that others might view as sins. I'd want to be understood as a human being and human beings are fallible and to not feel judged or a sense of shame about this. I think if I found such a group, I'd be much more interested in joining. Um, that community. I think too, it would just be really important, of course, that my beliefs align with theirs for the most part. Those beliefs being primarily that everything is God. There isn't any separateness. Like God is within everything. Mm-hmm. So we're getting close to the end of the public interview, and I am going to I'm going to ask you in the private podcast, the second half of the interview, about particular. Um, I'm going to ask you about shame, right? And 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 uh, particularly religious contexts in which people use shame to motivate uh, things like that. Um, also, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, maybe what you could call like self-deprecating prayers, mm. right? To say like, oh, you know, I am, I am the worst of sinners and, you know, wow. the, the, those, kinds, those kinds of prayers. And uh, yeah, what, what your take would be on as someone who's standing outside of the, uh, the gates of the people who use these prayers, um, what your take on them would be. Um. Yeah, so that's what we're going to talk about in the uh, Patreon half. But uh, 
to end the podcast here. You got about a minute and a half. I'm wondering to talk more about your podcast, Stop Psychoanalyzing Me. Is there anything in particular that you've actually learned or had made more clear to you when asking the experts about particular subjects of mental health? Because, you know, you are in the field already and you're playing the the layperson in asking the questions. Is there anything that stood out particularly from one of these interviews that you've done so far? And would you be willing to share that with our listeners as a takeaway? Absolutely. Um, I did a recent interview on grief with a grief counselor and she primarily works with children as well as families who've lost children. It was a very sort of sad, but also very meaningful episode. And she talked about how children process grief differently that sometimes parents worry that their child isn't grieving or isn't grieving in the right way because there are times when the child is sad, but then there are also times when the child seems perfectly fine and is playing. And there are a lot of misconceptions about grief as well, that it's sort of something that you get over or this belief that grief is a, a painful sort of singular emotion or that it's wrong to be relieved when someone dies. So we talked a lot about different reactions to death and the grieving process, and I found that extraordinarily fascinating. I also think the biggest thing I've learned globally is that people are passionate and they love talking about their field. They even love talking about the most basic questions in their field. I thought I'd be annoying these experts with these very kind of curious and very surface level questions. At least at first, every podcast starts with very surface level questions and, and gets a little bit deeper. But actually, it's quite the contrary. They're often really thankful that they had this opportunity to share. And I'm so glad I can provide it for them. You've just finished listening to the first half of this interview. Find out how to access the second half by visiting my website, pryingpriest.com. We'll see you next time. Say, why would you look outside yourself when you...